Hello and welcome back to Tank 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be running you through a top 10 list of films for you today. I'll be looking at my top 10 Pixar films. And that's right, I shall be discussing the works, and my favourite works specifically, of the animation studio owned by Disney, Pixar Animations, which originally were founded in the 1990s. Uh, They are the birthplace of the first ever animated feature film, computer animated feature film, I should say, actually, specifically, in Toy Story back in 1995, uh, which was very revered for the time as a groundbreaking piece of film that no one had ever done before. We'd seen feature-length animated films from the likes of Disney before, uh, but this one, obviously, Disney acquired Pixar, and they distributed the film eventually as well, but this was the first computer-animated feature-length film of its kind back in 1995, and this episode is all about my favourite Pixar films. I shall basically be going through a top ten list of my favourite films. I'll rate them out of five, I'll give you a highlight, a little bit about the film, and maybe my odd favourite character here and there, and the sentiments and such. So, I'm just going to jump straight into it, but remember before we start... Please follow us on our social medias at Take97Podcast on Twitter and at Take97Podcast on Instagram. You'll find lots of images and stills from the films that we discuss on there, as well as polls and general interactions. Links to the episodes themselves will be available on there and general sneak peeks for future episodes. But for now, let's get back to the episode. Starting with number 10, the 2015 Peter Son directed film and if you know Peter Son he voiced Socks who was in the other Pixar film of recent years in 2022 Lightyear who was my favourite character from that but besides that he directed this film and this film like I said 2015 it, it poses the question what if the asteroid never wiped out the dinosaurs and that is basically what we get here Pixar deal with what if toys could talk What if cars had personalities? What if this had this? Well, in this one, this is what if the asteroid never wiped out the dinosaurs and what if the dinosaurs basically were sentient like humans? Essentially, Pixar gives inanimate objects or animals or anything that doesn't normally have a voice a voice. And in this case, you know, addressing human issues but told through the framework of whichever inanimate object or animal there is in choosing that they've decided to go for. And in this case, like I've just said, it is dinosaur themed. And my number 10 pick is The Good Dinosaur uh, from 2015. Now, the story is very simple. We essentially follow a young dinosaur called Arlo, basically, as he goes through the film, trying to prove to himself and to his family in a way, but mostly to himself, that he can step up and be who he truly needs to be in life and that he can break out from this shyness that he's adapted to in his life since he was a young dinosaur in the nest, as it were. So his family, so that we open up the film with a lovely shot of what if the the asteroid never wiped out the dinosaurs and it goes flying past, just past them, just missed the Earth, so nothing happened then. And we get introduced to this family of corn farmers, Henry and Ida, who are the parents. Then we get, obviously, they have children, Libby, Buck, and Arlo. Arlo being the youngest. 
as far as I remember anyway. Essentially, just a little spoiler alert ahead for you here. Arlo's father, Henry, he takes him on a walk, basically to have a chat with him about, you know, you need to start, you know, really be confident in what you do and your abilities. And, you know, Arlo's clearly struggling with his responsibilities on the corn farm. Uh, and he's not doing as well as, say, his, his um, siblings or his parents. He feels a bit burdened that he's not doing as well as he should be kind of thing. Uh, so basically putting himself down a lot. But his father tries to take him aside and give him a bit of fatherly encouragement. And during this time, as they say, oh, we ought to get back. There's a big storm. And here's the spoiler for you. Henry gets washed away in a big way, like down because there's a river that they're walking along. And he gets washed away by some waves uh, in like a mini landslide of nature. And he is lost, basically. Uh, Henry dies in this event. And it's a very sad moment for everyone involved, especially those watching. It kind of gives you the Lion King effect. So again, if you haven't seen Lion King... I don't know why you were listening to this, but you should have seen Lion King if you're a Disney fan. But the loss of Arlo's father, Henry, gives you the sense of that fatherly loss that you get in The Lion King with Simba and also, you know, that nature of even though Simba's dad was killed. Uh, and also you get the same, you know, Bambi, the loss of the mother. You know, the, it's a classic Disney trope. So although this is Pixar, you definitely can see that they're referencing <laughs> Disney's trademark of killing off the parents. They do it in Frozen after all as well. Oh, and also creating that horrible woman, the the grandmother in Encanto. Don't at me, guys. Uh, I, she's the worst character in Encanto. Uh, but let's not get distracted too much. The loss of a parent really anchors Arlo to try and... He, he wallows in self-pity, as it were, as well. But then eventually a human. So humans do exist with dinosaurs in this point as well. Because normally you think... Oh, humans existed you know just after or around the ice age time not at the same time as dinosaurs as such but evolution has progressed so we get these cave men and women and there's this little boy human boy he's referred to the character as spot spot the the boy who he's become separated from his family and essentially the film just shows you a very brief journey of arlo trying to get rid of the boy but then also coming to you know, love and care for this little tiny human and kind of showing a sense of fatherly responsibility himself, even though he's only a young dinosaur himself. And eventually, you know, little spoiler ahead for you guys, the family do reconnect with Spot, but there's a whole load of like little journeys and little misadventures in between the meeting of Arlo and Spot and Spot returning home. A highlight, I would say, a very emotional moment is when Spot is reunited with his family. It's a lovely moment, but you have to watch the whole film to truly get the emotional context. And another highlight from the film as well, but it's a very sad one, is when obviously Henry, the father, is washed away uh, by the waves and obviously to his death. Uh, but I just think there's a nice moment in the film where you get Arlo rescuing Spot from a wave, very much like the one that took Henry, and then Arlo basically saving Spot makes up for the whole guilt that he felt for not trying to save his father and not sticking with his gut instinct and and feeling a little better about himself. So overall, the film is quite simple and straightforward. Uh, very kid-friendly, I'd say. You know, there's a big moral at the end of this and such. And I'd say, you know, The Good Dinosaur, Peter Son, three out of five stars, I'd recommend that one. Um, it's visually really beautiful as well. There's some good animation going on in here as well because that's the whole point of Pixar films. The animation is key, and that's all I can really say about this film, really, because 
is what if the dinosaurs kept on living and it's a morality tale involving a tiny human and there's elements of like reminiscent of like the silent movie era where you get no speech from the human but lots of speech from the dinosaur so that's a nice dynamic between you're not getting a to and fro conversation you're just getting a someone talking and then nothing but like expressions and the animation has to speak for itself and that's what i think i love about the good dinosaur it's visually beautiful uh, the story is very simple but it's visually amazing so i'd recommend that one in at number 10 number nine we're going to move on now Still in the 2010s, though, a couple of years ahead from The Good Dinosaur, 2017, a completely different country, completely different culture. We're not talking about what if people had, like, what if these could, what if these people could speak, like, you know, a toy or cars or anything like that. But we are thinking on the lines of what if the dead could speak. But in this case, it's culturally significant because actually set in Mexico uh, and based around the cultural significance of the Mexican holiday, the Day of the Dead, and we see the depiction of the land of the dead as well. So we do get to see, you know, it's a real thing that people in the real world believe in and something that actually happens every year. Obviously, we can't imagine everything (laughs) because obviously not everyone has the same beliefs, etc. But this is an interesting film because um, it's directed by, well, it's co-directed by Adrian Molina and Lee Unkrich. The idea, apparently, so I read, was a brief idea by Lee Unkrich, but it was co-directed by him, who will become relevant later in the episode. In 2017, uh, the film Coco from Pixar is an emotional ride in a much different way than The Good Dinosaur. The Good Dinosaur is very kid-friendly. It, you know, There's a message at the end of it. It's putting a an adult sort of very mature message-ish into a kid's film in the mouth of dinosaurs. Whereas this one deals with actual human people and deals with issues of family and such. It's kind of, I feel like Encanto kind of stole Coco's thunder really nowadays because Coco really is the original one out of the two of them, even though, you know, Encanto's not a Pixar film, but Coco really has that element of say going against the family wishes kind of thing so i'll just go back into detail about what this is about so coco it's set around the mexican holiday the day of the dead we have lovely stunning visuals throughout of the little village and little town um, that it's set in as well as the land of the dead as well which is a weird contrast because it's a depiction of the afterlife but at the same time it's really lovely because you get to see you know, all these people who are skeletons, but in the style of the Mexican style then, and everything else is so colourful. So, it, like, it's gritty and dark, but at the same time, it's a very colourful depiction then. And that's, you know, in tune with, from what I understand very little of, only at a basic level, in tune with the traditions of the Mexican holiday. Uh, and I just think, you know, considering... Pixar started off being just American stories, you know, basics and stuff, which you could argue, even though it's a recent film, The Good Dinosaur is really a basic Pixar film that could have been even made at an early stage in Pixar's career because the likes of Toy Story, A Bug's Life, The Incredibles, Cars, they're all American, very American-based stories. Yeah, we do break out of that a little bit when we get to the likes of Ratatouille, which is set in Paris, but there's still that American influence on the film and i'll get back to that later but this one truly i think shows a good step forward in terms of a diverse sense of storytelling but this is really just a good show of 
a sense of moving forward and a sense of inclusion. Obviously, I can't judge too much. Like, there's the odd stereotype here and there still in the Pixar film of Coco with, like, sombreros and stuff like that. Um, But generally, the visuals are very beautiful and exciting. There's a good scene, which I love for its beautiful imagery. But the film centers around a character, a young boy called Miguel, um, and his family... Uh, Basically, it's his journey trying to reverse his family's ban on music. He loves music. Apparently, his um, grandfather was a great singer, so he was told and found out. Uh, But no one ever really talks about it. No, it's not Bruno. But we are talking... He doesn't... They don't talk about it. And Coco is the name of this old woman, the grandmother of um, Miguel, who sits in this rocking chair for the majority of the film and is... She doesn't say a lot, really. Uh, and doesn't really become super relevant until the end of the film. And essentially, the sense of the Mexican holiday is that these guys, like family members, they gather together and they have, like in the case of Coco in this film, they have a shrine uh, of all their family members that they like to remember every year. And they have something like a picture and something to represent them. And they light a candle for them every year, every time they come around to the Day of the Dead festival. And... It's really an interesting concept, really, that even just as a outside of the film, where if you forget someone, that's the reason why people take photographs so much. If you don't have a, something to have as a thing to say, these people existed once, remember them, the memory will kill off the soul that's living in the afterlife. And essentially they will cease to exist because memory, if, if no one is remembering them, then they will cease to exist in the afterlife, uh, which is a very sort of a grim thing to look at. But Pixar has touched on some very grim elements of life already in a kid-friendly way. But this way is ultimately showing Miguel trying to discover who his grandfather was. And, uh, you know, we get introduced to a character called Hector, who's like the comedy factor in this. We'll discover more about Hector actually later. And actually there is a villain in this uh, called Ernesto, who's the villain of the piece. He doesn't seem like it. He's like a really famous singer, and he's believed to be Miguel's grandfather. But obviously, um, that's not the case. But I'm not going to spoil it too much. I want you guys to find out who the real grandfather was and the story behind it. Um, But let's just say a bit of plagiarism here and there in terms of music had been played on in the world of Coco. But essentially, it's all about Miguel turning his family's ban on music around and making it clear that music isn't a bad thing. For me, a personal highlight is when you see Miguel play a guitar. I think it's Ernesto's guitar. And the magical spell, so like orangey, bright, colourful dust-like light comes from it and makes leaves blow from this little catacomb tomb. And it's just a joyous, lovely scene to watch when he sort of unlocks this key to the land of the dead and he accidentally ends up in there and if he stays there too long he will turn into a skeleton essentially and be left there for good Uh, but that's you know there's loads of hijinks here and there him getting in and out of the land of the dead and discovering who a true member of his family actually was and secrets that had been buried for many many years that not everyone had actually discovered so really it's a family morality tale that did it first before Encanto Uh, And the whole we don't talk about this person because they brought shame on the family kind of thing because of this event. But there's misunderstanding. I rate Coco personally a good solid 3.5 
out of five. Uh, it's just that little bit better than The Good Dinosaur because it's emotional, it's very sad. There's beautiful imagery throughout. I could go on and talk about it forever, but overall it's a tale of discovering your family again and really concentrating on holding on to memories of family. That's really, if The Good Dinosaur is about learning to believe in yourself, Coco's about accepting the family that you have and not shunning them away because at the end of the day, everyone should be remembered for something. And it's actually vital in this particular part of the world that people remember their dead because otherwise it ends them completely. Uh, so it was quite dark, but you know, Coco, it's a sad film, but it's also a beautiful film. Uh, and also other bits that I love is just the setting of the land of the dead with all the colors and the bright, you know, all the hallmarks of the Mexican day of the dead festival which I, you know, we got to see a bit of that in the opening sequence of James Bond, a James Bond film with Daniel Craig. Uh, I think, what is it, uh, Spectre, if I remember correctly, the opening sequence of Spectre. Lovely, lovely, luscious production, that. But I think the animation, even though it's big on some scale, it's smaller than the James Bond production and has just as much the same effect, if not more, poignancy through its color, choice of colours and visuals. And it's very magical, even though... You know, it's fantastical that the Land of the Dead is so colourful and the way it's been depicted, but it's also fantastical because it's an idealist version of what we hope that would look like, especially particularly orientated to this culture. So I think it's a genuinely lovely thing. And also, you know, introducing something that's not so American into the universe of Pixar is just brilliant. And um, but yeah, uh, there are other films that hold great moments in my heart and yeah this film i think my favorite character is hector because he is a comedic genius i don't know why i said it like that but a comedic genius he's just great but also has a bit of heart to him as well and i realized i didn't mention my favorite character from the good dinosaur um it's probably arlo but yeah that's a bit obvious because he's one of the few ones i can actually sort of really pick because the story focuses on him but yeah coco 2017 3.5 out of 5 a brilliant film Next up we have In at Number 8. Uh, I had a bit of a switch up with some of these as well, but this one is a recent one. It's from 2020, and it was actually made and produced majority of it during lockdown as well, um, before they released it on Disney Plus uh, and home release. Uh, and it is the 2020 Pete Doctor film. So Pete Doctor is a big player in these films. Uh, you'll see his name in another film soon. But Pete Doctor directed the... Jamie Foxx led so Jamie Foxx voices a character called Joe Gardner who's a jazz musician uh, and you'll know where I'm going with this it's set in New York City you know I've got to mention this because I love New York on film even though this is animated and it is all about soul uh, and that film it came out in 2020 it's again it's a very different kind of film it's very human but it takes a bit of fantasy and a sense of you know again I haven't done this deliberately but this one is the more American view and side of the afterlife i mean i don't know there might be a specific like belief or religion that believes in this form of the afterlife or this version of it um, but in this version so soul essentially looks at a person's soul and how souls are created and there's a big the great beyond as it were where people when they die their souls go to the great beyond and essentially new souls get created in this little sort of crash, basically, before they get partnered up with an older soul, uh, in some cases, who has lived and influenced people on Earth and been on Earth. And then they act as this mentor 
to these new souls to shape them and then eventually they find their moment and their thing that makes them shine and their purpose then uh, and joe gardner he stupidly he falls down a drain out of all places he falls down a drain killing himself but then he, he doesn't want to go to the great beyond which is visually very scary to be honest it's a big black black space on a big escalator travelator type thing where he's going to this bright spot of nothingness where obviously i mean no one really knows what the great beyond is but it's alluded to that that's the ultimate end game really but joe goes off course uh, he causes issues with the numbers in the uh, department that does all the soul work, I suppose. There's a there's a character that's very... Um, there's these, like, two-dimensional characters. They're 2D, and they just... They, they, they're like the gods, as it were, that control everything going on. And, you know, oh, there's one soul missing that should have gone to the great beyond, and it's died, blah de blah And Richard Iowadi stars as one of these overlord character people uh and it's just he's just so funny uh, and then we've also got tina fey who plays a character called 22 she's just known as soul 22 she doesn't have a name or anything just 22 and she has been sort of the working progress of the soul station as it were to get her onto earth and into a body and born but she never finds her purpose and she is very militant to find excuse to go down to earth so she doesn't want to so she always bullies all of her mentors and then joe comes along so joe played by jamie fox and he somehow manages to convince her that you know life on earth is well living enjoy the small things out of life and you know he introduces her through a very funny means because they they go into the wrong bodies because joe wants to return to earth because he's very obsessed with um becoming uh, you know doing what he loves playing for this jazz band he's got a jazz gig you know there's all sorts of family things brought into this as well that joe's family think that his music career isn't you know brilliant and it's not something he should be aspiring to because it doesn't pay him well he should stick to teaching which he does do but you know he doesn't love at first but he learns to accept and love about himself later on you get to see this funny moment one of my highlights from the film is when joe is transported into the body of a cat <laughs> and 22 is in joe's body and they experience life together and joe tells 22 all about the joys of life and opens her up to these little pleasures that seem really i don't know insignificant to many people like i don't know just tasting pizza for the first time or enjoying the taste you know having a heart-to-heart -heart chat with a friend or you know going to your local barbers and getting your hair cut and talking about what you want to do in life and what your dreams and hopes are for the future are and learning how to really connect with people considering you know this film i would rate it personally i could rate it five out of five but because i've rated the others a little bit lower i'm gonna to have to say four out of five mainly on the basis that it's not a brilliant it's not a perfect film by any means visually it's five out of five for me because pixar's vision of new york city it's just oh it's absolutely beautiful like the animation detail is amazing like if we watch the likes of the re toy story 4 compared to the original toy story you look at the details on the fabrics and the plastics and all the different textures that are on the toys they are applied so well to the likes of soul and you look at the apartment that joe lives in the sidewalks in new york you know the skin textures as well even though most pixar characters have got the smoothest skin ever i want to know who their skincare treatment is but you know 
I think that the film depicts New York City in such a beautiful way that only a Pixar film could, and that's why I absolutely love it. It's beautiful, and also it's got jazz music in it. It's um, Pixar and Disney's basically aspiration to La La Land without being a musical, essentially. We follow Joe's trials and tribulations of wanting to get back to Earth, and we get to see somebody else learn how to accept their fate, and ultimately Joe is rewarded with something towards the end of the film, which again, I'm not going to spoil, but 2020, considering it was such a rough time for the pan- with the pandemic and everything, with COVID-19 and everything, I think that Soul was the right sort of film to be released, and I'm glad that it was made around the time it was, because you learn to appreciate all the little things in life. So the taste of pizza, spending time with friends, doing the stuff that you love, be that watching films, reading books, playing music, that is the ultimate message of soul. And Pete Doctor did a brilliant job on this one. He's a Pixar stalwart because he's just an absolute standard of Pixar filmmaking. And I just think that the film earns itself in my top 10, really. So that's at number eight. Key moments, oh, I also love um, Graham Norton's appearance as a character called Moonwind. He's a very hippie guy who manages to transcend the barriers between the soul world and the real world where he goes into meditative states and he goes into the astral plane and finds lost souls and helps them out. I just think he's absolutely brilliant. And he's just a guy that flips signs in the middle of New York City. It's just a lovely character. And, you know, I think Joe and the cat swap body swap scene is just great. And at the same time as well, I do think the message of appreciating the good things in life is amazing. Soul, I would say I'd rate 4.5 out of 5, or 4 out of 5, I'd say, just to give it a solid rating. Because it's not perfect, and it's very cliched in some respects that, you know, all all happy by the end. But it's a truly beautiful film. And uh, yeah, just a great one overall. And number 7, again, I'm rating this 4 out of 5. It's from 2015, so the same year as The Good Dinosaur. And it's directed by Pete Doctor again. Uh, And I think this sense of finding a sense of purpose and belonging is very true for Pete Doctor stories. And in this one, it's Inside Out. And Inside Out basically follows, we look at this young girl called Riley and her family as they move from their house to a city house. Riley basically is affected by the move and the changes in her life. Essentially, Inside Out is a story of emotions and it follows everybody in their heads has these emotions in their own little control room and the brain is made up of all these different islands of core memories and core moments and they have, you know, Fun Island and, you know, Logical Island, all these different things are all connected. And essentially, when one day, uh, you know, there are things called core memories which are these glowing balls that make up the foundations of personality and who a person's going to be. Uh, And we show the moment that all these characters are born. And um, we've got this little mixture of characters. I'll read them out for you, actually, to be fair. Um, We've got the likes of, uh, so it's 11-year-old Riley and the emotions in her head is what the story focuses on. Anger, joy, sadness, disgust, fear. Those are the main players in her head Uh, and they all have to take it in terms of controlling the mind and having their fair share of things they react to things that other people do which are being controlled by the emotions in their heads so the emotions are reacting with each other and it's just really a good experiment to show how people's emotions differ and how 
personality and memory can be formed. It's a visual representation of that. And essentially the message of this film that I love is that Joy, so we've got Joy, who's like the happiest one of all. She's the you know, green dress, yellow bodied, blue hair. She's really happy all the time. Uh, and we've got sadness as well. And we learn throughout this film that, you know, whilst anger, disgust and fear are constants, and so is joy and sadness, if you take away sadness and joy from each other, you separate them. They cannot live without each other. Uh, and essentially, it really it touches on depression. It's for a kid's film or like a family film. The story of Inside Out focuses on this journey between joy and sadness and their absence from the mind when they get lost in one of the islands and they try and recover some of Riley's memories and trying to make her stay the way she was. But we ultimately learn that people change, people forget aspects of their life, but it's all a building block of life. And essentially when sadness takes over and destroys some of the core memories, Riley she ultimately becomes depressed and starts to become withdrawn and very irritated and that's the thing I love about Inside Out it's a very interesting film from a sense it's it's got a moral but at the same time it's it was good because it focuses on a you know a sense of really acknowledging depression then and how everyone's different and emotions control us in many different ways. So I, I genuinely think Inside Out, if you wanna understand what a kid's going through, it's not the guide to understanding kids' emotions, but it's a very good one to look at from that perspective. And also just as an adult really as well, it's good to see how these emotions control us. But yeah, it's a film, I describe it as a film about how human the human mind works in a child and a family-friendly manner. I just think that at the end of the day, I can't say much more about this one. It's a four out of five because of how strong the story is and how anchored it is in talking about and opening a conversation related to depression and anxiety. And I think it's a really good one to show your kids. So Inside Out is great. And visually, it's very interesting. It brings personality into a whole new level. And I'd just like to say my favourite character as well from Inside Out. I, I don't really have a favourite one. They're all my favourite. They all work together as a team. The emotions together are a great group of little characters. So that's all I have to say on that. But moving on to number six. And uh, number six is from 2008. So we're going back in time now. Directed by Andrew Stanton. And it's rated four out of five stars from me personally. Because it's a great, interesting look at the future. A dystopian version of the future without the whole completely doom-filled end of the world stuff. Um, I just think this is a good, an interesting film from that point that it's a science fiction film but it also has some very strong links to silent movie cinema of the 1920s because of the lack of dialogue for the majority of the film uh, and that film is Wally. Uh, it's about a basically the, the world has become uninhabitable and there's a big corp mega corporation called by and large or bnl who basically in the 29th century send everybody off on these big like cruise liners or spaceships which um has taken all of the humans off world in hope that by the time that they come back to earth or are scheduled to allegedly that the world will be a better place the world has become overridden by waste and rubbish and basically 
Wally or Wall E. Um, he is a waste robot who collects all kinds of items um, from the wasteland. He's generally all of those robots. Uh, there was lots of him, many versions of him who used to collect rubbish and try to compact it to clean up the world. But obviously most of them have been decommissioned and the mission had been abandoned. But Wally was the last, this Wally unit that we're looking at now, is the last of his kind. And he basically has developed his own personality and he essentially is living alone and entertaining himself by collecting lots of obscure objects in his little trailer on Earth. You see all sorts like Rubik's Cube, toys, videos. He even has a TV at one point, which has a lovely, beautiful scene. I have a lovely sort of soft spot for where it's... I don't even know whether it's a live action or whether it's actually an animated set of people. It looks like a live action segment of some people in an old-fashioned musical from the 1950s where they're singing a lovely, beautiful love song to each other, and Wally looks absolutely captivated. It's a lovely, beautifully animated film. And I just think that, you know, for something that has no... I mean, there's dialogue introduced with the robot, so the the Axiom, which is the giant ship, with the autopilot, auto, and obviously the humans that are on board the ship as well. The film mostly is no dialogue at all, because the robot's either just communicating beeps and bloops and stuff or you know wally just goes wally and he then comes across there's this robot which has been sent as like a surveyor robot um it's a very clean shiny white very digital beautiful robot known as eve or eva as wally likes to say uh, <laughs> who basically the pair of them they somehow fall in love. And again, this Pixar thing is the whole what if robots fell in love? What if they fell in love with each other? <laughs> uh, what if a robot developed human-like feelings uh, in a way, but without the whole taking over the world Terminator-style thing? <laughs> but I think, uh, you know, Wally's very endearing. Eve comes down to Earth to find a sample. They actually find it. It's all about, basically, there's this plant that Wally finds and it's proof, apparently, that the world is habitable again because a plant is growing on Earth, um, even though it's probably the only one of its kind. But it's proof enough to say, look, it's ready for humans to come back and inhabit, uh, which ultimately, by the end of the film, you know, you'll see what the end of the film's like. But, you know, society is getting rebuilt and they have to... Humans have to relearn things because, essentially, on this ship, humans have become big, fat blobs, uh, and their muscle density is r reduced massively, and they've just become all big, fat blobs that just get carried around everywhere, and they don't actually do anything for themselves anymore. Machines work for them and do all the big work for them and transport them from here to there. So it really is sort of a comment on the future of what can happen if we don't stay active as people and we let technology do too much for us. But it's also saying, you know, robots are also really useful as well in the sense of, you know, Wally, who's very much like a human, who has that connection to the old ways of, you know, the romance of things. So, you know, his romantic feelings for Eve are very present and strong. And also his 
feelings towards his own collection of things. He even makes friends with a little, a little, not a grasshopper, but a little, um, sort of cockroach thing <laughs> on earth. And he starts to care for it. And he says, well, you stay here. I've got to keep you safe. You know, kind of thing. He doesn't say that. And the connections to the silent movie cinema and all you rely on is, um, like there's the legendary sound designer, Ben Burt, who is the voice of Wally. But he just makes all these noises, like sound effects. He's legendary, Ben, but he did a lot of the work on the Star Wars films, like Star Wars prequels. I know he did some work on and lots of other films, just to name a couple. But he's literally a legend. And he did this science fiction film for a family audience. I just think it's truly an amazing story of science fiction. The visuals, again, there's a lovely bit I think is my favorite is when Wally's in space and he's holding on his arm. One of his arms is reached out. And it's like, it's almost like, like a, like a spray of like sparkling stars kind of happens around him and him and Eve are flying through space together. Uh, It's beautifully done. It's like visual poetry. I genuinely think it's one of my ultimate highlights as a film overall, because, you know, the good dinosaurs are very good visually, as are, you know, Inside Out, Coco, Soul's beautiful as well but Wally I think was one of the earliest examples of how visually stunning Pixar animations could be uh, and yeah you know like I think I mentioned Wally watching the old scene of the old movie musical with the romance um, he attempts to recreate this when he begins to develop the bond with Eve <laughs> literally the, the the humans are just hilariously out of touch with reality Um, But eventually they overthrow the machines with the help of some more machines, uh, (laughs) like Wally and Eve. Sigourney Weaver, fun fact, is the voice of the ship's computer. And we also get Fred Willard as Shelby Forthright, the CEO of BNL, who I believe I think he's actually, it's live action footage, which I find very strange that they have a live action segments in a Pixar animated film because normally they just animate the people but in this case I think they wanted to make them look so different from the blobs that are the human characters in the film that they got the live action people in to say oh this is what we used to look like and now we're just this so you know it's an interesting take on things and I overall Wally is a very very emotional film like all Pixar films, but it's also very funny as well, very raw and funny in that respect, because it's just straightforward and to the point, and it's showing you the simple pleasures of being alive, essentially. Oh, and my number one enemy, Auto, the wheel bot, the autopilot. (laughs) He's like everyone's worst nightmare in AI form. But yeah, no, I love the space scene where Wally's flying through space with Eve, with, um, I think he's using a fire extinguisher, I think, to fly around, but honestly, it's absolutely stunning. And the message at the end of the day that, you know, you, no matter how bad things can get, you can still rebuild them with a bit of effort, time, and love, and care, and attention. And yeah, basically, don't junk up the planet is essentially the message there, I think, for that one there. Next up on the list is number five. It's a 2009 film. Again, I'd rate this one four out of five stars, purely because, I mean, I'd rate it five out of five purely for the opening ten minutes the first 10 minutes of the film. Uh, It's directed by Pete Docter again. (laughs) I promise not all of these films are directed by Pete Docter, but it is called Up, and everybody who knows Pixar will know Up very famously uh, because of the first 10 minutes, the opening sequence of Up. It's literally, it's so famed for how emotional and how really 
sort of brilliant the storytelling is all in just the opening 10 minutes and then it sounds very horrible but you kind of don't at some point you don't really care about the rest of the story in a way because you are so invested in the opening journey that is that first 10 minutes basically up follows the this old man carl Fredrickson, who's a retired balloon salesman and basically he lives on his own and he gets visited one day by uh by one of the scouts, a, a boy scout called Russell, who's very over the top, and he wants to earn his badge of helping the elderly and stuff like that, and he's uh, basically generally annoying to Carl. Uh, and they go on this little adventure where he's tr- his house is trying... They're trying to demolish his house, basically, to make space for big apartment blocks and stuff. Um, but he doesn't want to move, and eventually he takes the house with him and Russell, without knowing up into the air with a big load of balloons attached through his roof and they end up going on a big adventure to a place called Paradise Falls um, which is a place that Carl when he was younger wanted to go with his late wife Ellie. Now the story behind Up though is that Ellie is basically um, the love of Carl's life so Carl Fredrickson uh, and Ellie they do get married eventually but which is explained in the first 10 minutes but essentially that first 10 minutes is comprising mainly of the a young 10-year-old Carl growing up uh, from the beginning with Ellie. They are enthusiasts of Charles Muntz, a great explorer, uh, and they both share their enthusiasm for him and the topics relating to going on adventures. And Ellie gets this adventure book, which is a famed adventure book, which is a little scrapbook where they put all of their like adventures, photos and stuff into write all their memories in together and it's very lovely they make they the 10 minutes extend to them making savings towards raise a baby and raise a child ellie miscarries and is unable to have children so uh, they then decide to continue saving but for a trip to paradise falls but then ultimately ellie they keep having to use the money for like repairs to the house and various other reasons and eventually when they do feel like they can, i think carl buys tickets uh, plane tickets to get to Paradise Falls, they um, ultimately, unfortunately, Ellie falls very ill and dies shortly, not long after falling ill, after the moment that Carl was going to give her the tickets to say that they were going away on their dream holiday. Uh, and honestly, you know, you see them as young kids growing up together and then getting married and working together, all the sadness and heartache of the miscarriage, all the way up to Ellie's death. And then we were left with Carl who was once a very optimistic young boy, uh, who was a bit shy to start with, but was very optimistic in that respect, a big fan of Charles Munns and adventures. And then he becomes this sad, bitter old man who eventually through the course of the film, he learns to love what he used to enjoy in life or enjoy about life then as he goes on this adventure with Russell and ultimately a bird called Kevin (laughs) a a rare bird which Charles Muntz who was Carl's idol eventually turns out to be a villain and we also meet this dog this talking dog well he's a dog that's got like a neck brace on like a couple of other dog characters uh, which enables him to talk and the dog is called Doug Doug the dog uh, and he Carl and Russell become this awesome trio which we learn to love and yeah, the sentiment of it is really don't let go of who you once were because of the hardships that life has dealt you. Ultimately, you should always 
maintain a firm grasp on the things that you love in life no matter what life throws at you you're never too old to do anything that's the sort of message of up i love them the scene specifically when the house flies up into the air with the balloons anchoring it up although that was a lot of balloons to anchor a house so heavy and just like i said the opening 10 minutes the opening sequence of up is just beautifully breathtakingly emotional and so heartbreaking at the same time carl isn't my favorite character i'd say doug is my favorite character doug the dog is amazing up with the next film which also ties this in so i'd rate four out of five stars for up 2009 pete doctor film but i do think you know it's a sense of adventure sense of fun and it's a real good family film from the sadness at the beginning to the fun reminisce at the end and then we move on to number four in my list from 2007 i write this personally it's directed by brad bird five out of five stars it's a brilliant film i watched it most recent of most recent times the most recent of my rewatchings is ratatouille from 2007 which like i said before most pixar films dealt with american-based settings whereas this one although remy the rat and his family are all like they sound american is set in france but there is a bit of a stereotype issue with this because a lot of them have very stereotypical french accents and you know the depictions of such french people are still slightly stereotypical and not the best depictions but the film itself and the message it has is very good it has this feeling of bonding and discovering you know the message of the film really is anyone can do it so in the sense of this is all about cooking and working in a french restaurant in the heart of paris and about this rat's dream to cook good food you know he lives with his family this clan of rats this massive colony of rats uh, who are obviously seen as vermin to most people but he becomes a poison checker because he's got a better adapted sense of taste and smell to know when things are poisoned but then he gets separated from his family after basically he turns a old granny's house upside down trying to get saffron for a little experiment in cooking he did with some lightning <laughs> which is lightningy which is a very hilarious moment and then i love the moment particularly i love the visuals of new york in seoul so in this considering it's an earlier animation so it's not as advanced as say soul or toy story 4 or any like coco or anything like that the visuals of paris the shot when you know, remy throughout the entire film he has a sort of a figment of his own imagination a version of the famous human chef gusto basically mentoring him at his side like his little guardian angel kind of thing he introduces him to where he is saying food will find you you don't have to steal food you don't have to be a thief and when he finds his way up onto a rooftop it's this lovely vista shot that we get of paris with the eiffel tower in the middle of it it's absolutely gorgeous the lights then because it's a nightlife version of paris the nighttime scene with all the lights shining brightly in the darkness of you know everything like very classic cityscape stuff and that's it he's like oh my god all this time i've been underneath paris uh, and you know you can just see the awestruckness that remy the rat has this little blue rat has for being in the capital of the subject that he loves so much and that is food and ultimately in the film so there's a character called linguini who turns out to be a very important character but he ends up unknowingly becoming a great chef overnight with the help of remy the rat who can actually cook uh, and they basically become Gusto's the restaurant even though the chef Gusto is dead so the ghost of him in Remy's head is literally just in his head um, 
the restaurant's in disrepair. It's only got three stars rather than five because of Anton Ego's scathing review. So this character, Anton Ego, who comes back into the limelight and says, you know, Gusto's is doing well. People are enjoying it and, you know, thinking it's good. So he has to see what it is for himself. And I'm not going to spoil the ending for you, but it's a very heartwarming moment when Ego has a you know, realisation and a bit of memory back to his childhood then, remembering the time that he was happiest with his mother. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And, you know, the joy of food and that anyone can cook is Gusto's motto. And, you know, that's a message for the film. Anyone can do something as long as they put their mind and their heart to it. If it's what they truly love and they truly believe in, that's how they'll do it. But moving on quickly to numbers three and two, because they're kind of collected, really. Number three, 1998, directed by John Lasseter. Five out of five rating for this one, and the same for the 2010 film, directed by Lee Unkrich, which is at number two. Both five out of five. I've got Toy Story 2 at number three, and Toy Story 3 at number two. Now, I'm bunking these together because, really, everybody should know Toy Story because I've gone over some of the basics in my Decade series in brief. But Toy Story 2, it's the sequel to the original one, the groundbreaking one. And the reason I I haven't put Toy Story number one on the list, it is an honourable mention, but everyone says Toy Story 1 is their favourite. It brings the original characters of Buzz and Woody into the fray, uh, Rex, Potato Head, Slinky, all the favourite ones, and then Zerg as well is mentioned in brief. But Zerg is actually brought into Toy Story 2. I just love, you know, I I could list on things about Toy Story 2 that I love. Toy Story 2 is the greatest sequel to the original that it could have been, and in fact it stands out so much as a second film. I love the Woody's Roundup VHS tape that they play, where we see Woody's origins as a toy, because he seems to be a -a one-of-a-kind toy, but then we see that he's actually part of a generation from the 50s, and we get to meet his Roundup gang, including Stinky Pete, Jesse the Cowgirl, and Bullseye the horse as well the trusty steed um the little things as well with old um stinky pete being a bit of a villainous type but also kind of being realistic at the same time about you will get broken will andy want you anymore and that's a theme that's carried through into toy story 3 of like oh when he goes to college will he take you with him and that's a question that's really sort of raised early on uh, in toy story 2 about owners not needing and wanting their toys anymore. And that is, you know, another highlight. So we've got Saving Wheezy the Penguin, um, who's voiced by the brilliant Joe Ramford, rest in peace, who came up with the idea for Cars with John Lasseter as well. But Wheezy the Penguin, he nearly gets sold to a yard sale, which eventually is the reason why Woody gets picked up by Al from Al's Toy Barn. And that brings up to so many of my favourite moments. Zerg versus the two buzzes in the toy shop and also on the elevator, the I'm your father rip-off moment is great. But Al's Toy Barn and Tour Guide Barbie is absolutely hilarious. But yeah, my true highlight from Toy Story 2, which makes it stand out, is the backstory for Jessie, the cowgirl. When somebody loves you, that heart-wrenching song about how she was once loved, and then Emily, her owner, abandoned her. And it's just so, so heart-wrenching. And then we get into Toy Story 3, where, you know, Andy gives up all of his toys, including the new guys, Jessie and Bullseye, who were taken on at the end of the second film. And um, they literally, you know, all of it was great. And they get left with this little girl, Bonnie, who were introduced during the film, and she's the main 
part of Toy Story 4 as well, which didn't need to happen, but I think Toy Story 3, the reason why I've ranked it so highly is because I think it's a great closing chapter to the Toy Story universe. They didn't have to do number four. They did it, and it works, and it made me cry, but number three, Toy Story 3 from 2010, is five out of five because it cemented that journey from Toy Story 1 all the way up to the end of that film, to infinity and beyond. It, You know, it shows Buzz and Woody have got closer... There's a great dynamic. There's some great new toys. We get Ken invited into the fray from Ken and Barbie. There's a bit of stuff there as well. Uh, and we get a great villain in Lotso, Hugging Bear, the strawberry fresh teddy bear that's the toy villain. Next to Stinky Pete and Sid from you know Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 1, they are the main trio of villains. And you've got a human villain, but then you've got, I think, toy villains. Villains that are on the same level as Woody and Buzz are just amazing to show because it means that it's not just all the humans being nasty to toys you know it's threats within their own universe but yeah so many new toys and characters in the daycare center in toy story 3 and also in the aisles of owl's toy barn in number two so you know together i rate them so closely but number three is just that little bit much better for me personally and somebody loves you is a heartbreaking thing from toy story 2 toy stories two and three five out of five and they're my number three and two points. And finally, after a very long episode, I now bring you my number one pick for my favourite Pixar film. I've watched the DVD for this over and over again. I'm surprised the DVD hasn't worn out, even though I've got Disney+. Plus. I still watch the DVD out of nostalgia. And it's the 2006 John Lasseter-directed film starring Owen Wilson as Lightning McQueen, Paul Newman as Doc Hudson... Larry the Cable Guy's Mater, and so many more voices, and that is Cars. It has got the best soundtrack, the best moral, the lovely sense of what used to come before has now been left behind, but it's all about rediscovering, like an old friend, so the Route 66 bypassing of the interstate travellers and everything like that, and they're getting forgotten until the moment that Lightning McQueen comes to town, big hotshot racing car. I just love the racing scenes. They're so fun. They're just really pacey, really great, and lots of fast-talking moments with Lightning McQueen. Owen Wilson is honestly in his element whenever he voices Lightning McQueen. In fact, there's actually Cars on the Road, a Disney Plus series coming in 2022. And even though it's a series, not a film, I'm looking forward to it very much because I think if they did Cars 4, it might be the same problem we have with Toy Story 4. It might be good, but it might not be needed. And personally, Cars 2 was okay, and it's better than I remembered when I watched it the other day, but it's still not as good as the original. The original one is truly a golden stand for a Pixar film. What if Cars could talk? What if Cars were like people? And truly, Lightning McQueen is my favourite character, ultimately, and the, then the relationship between him and Doc Hudson, the old racing car from the past, mentoring this new rookie and showing him the ways of how to be modest and sort of grown up and mature, it's really grown up. And then, you know, just there's so many things, like, yeah, the flashback to classic Radiator Springs pre-bypass is uh, lovely. It's a bit like the moment in Toy Story 2 where you get Jesse's somebody loved you. It makes you nostalgic for old time moments and 
really makes you sad that it's sort of all gone. But then by the end of the film, we get a bit more of a happier ending. And, you know, there's a race and there's a bit of a moral saying, I don't have to win like that. Like, that, you know, we've got so many characters. I collected so many diecast cars. It's unbelievable. They're somewhere in a box, but they're absolutely so amazing. The Chick Hicks, the green car, the King Weathers, for the blue car from Dynaco. But, you know, red has always been my favourite colour, and Lightning McQueen is my favourite character. Even through his arrogance, all the way up to his maturity, I think he's my favourite character overall. Look and style-wise, he's a great race car. Up with Sally, the love interest, who's, you know, there's a love interest here, but there's not too much romance in there, and it's quite nice that it's not all about getting together and smooching. The moral of the story shows throughout, always. But yeah, like I said, classic soundtrack as well. Life is a Highway by Rascal Flatts and Real Gone by Sheryl Crow are just a few of the soundtrack highlights that I absolutely adore. It really truly is the sort of soundtrack that makes you want to go on a road trip and you want to visit Route 66 after you watch this film. Cannot highly recommend it enough. But yeah, that's all I have to say before I go on and on about more Pixar films. Honourable mentions to Toy Story 1 because uh, it is the father of everything, the mother and father of all Pixar films to come after it uh, and also special mention to Turning Red because it was a fun film recently and also I have done my review on Lightyear so if you want to look at my review of Lightyear go check that out as well um, but just a reminder my top 10 Pixar films are as follows in at number 10 we have The Good Dinosaur from 2015 number 9 Coco 2017 number 8 Soul from 2020 number 7 Inside Out from 2015 number 6 Wally from 2008, number 5, Up 2009, number 4, The French Ratatouille from 2007, and Toy Story 2 from number 1999 in number 3, number 2, Toy Story 3 from 2010, and then finally, in at the number 1 spot, is Cars from 2006, the classic road trip movie that I absolutely adore. That's all I have to really say, really, on Pixar films. And I look forward to seeing you guys on another episode of Take 97 Film Podcast with maybe another top five, another top ten, and some more reviews, and hopefully very soon, some new guest episodes, which I'm excited to share with you guys. So tune in for those very soon, and I'll catch you on the next episode, guys. That's a wrap on Take 97, the Pixar Top 10 edition of the podcast, and I will see you soon, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.